New York City. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of SVU, we try to restore our family's good names after they were destroyed by drinking and gambling by reviewing the lost city of Zed. Wow. Staking out territory this mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a theme in common with our main review and inspired by a memorable supporting performance by Robert Pattinson in The Lost City of Z. Matt wanted us to devote an episode to his career in order to make the argument that Pattinson deserves to be as much of a critic's darling as his Twilight co-star Kristen Stewart. Then Matt tore his shirt in half, mm-hmm. revealing he had painted Team Edward across his torso. I was hoping you wouldn't he, mention this Matt, part. I hope it was paint, because that would be a really painful tattoo. And then he ran out the door howling, Jacob would have been a bad boyfriend. <laughs> and by the time I tracked him down and calmed him down, it was all I could do to persuade him that instead, we should devote this episode to movies about explorers. I, I thought we had agreed not to mention the tattoo part. You had agreed. Mm. But first, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Matt, you're up. What have you got this time? Uh, well, I might have a Team Edward uh, tattoo across my torso. Had to be my torso. Couldn't just be like my arm or something. No, it was across the whole torso All right, in well, old English font. Well, you'll have to explain your tor- your tattoo across your back of the name Gore Verbinski. He just happens to be... What is there to explain? <laughs> Nothing. You're right. It makes perfect <laughs> sense. Uh, anyway, Gore directed the, uh, the first pick of our opening break segment this time, A Cure for Wellness. It's available now on VOD. Here is the description from the Movies on Demand website. From the visionary director of The Ring comes this psychological thriller about an executive whose sanity is tested when he unravels the terrifying secrets of a remote retreat. And visionary is overdoing it, I think. The, the back tattoo, I think, is overdoing it as well. But I, I am also a fan of Gore Verbinski. He is the director of The Ring. He is also the director of the good Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And The Weatherman, and a bunch of other movies. He's had some good movies. And I liked A Cure for Wellness, too, to an, to an extent. Dane DeHaan plays this young, ambitious businessman. He's sent to this retreat where the wealthy go for the cure to retrieve this member of his uh, Wall Street firm who went there for the cure and then never came back. And when Dane DeHaan arrives, he finds this place that has this mysterious past and weird water. There's a lot of water imagery. Water, water everywhere. And uh, a lot of what he is seeing might be hallucinations or delusions. It's not clear. Allison, I am not going to mince words about this movie. It is too long. Sure. It is two and a half hours. Yes. The only thing more nightmarish about the imagery in this movie is the runtime. I'm not crazy about that. But there is some really good stuff in this movie. I thought the scary stuff in it actually was scary. There's some very spooky imagery lots of eels and eels everywhere general uh, submersion tank Submer- yeah like sensory deprivation tanks like from weird, hell yeah weird uh just like um basement rooms like these steam rooms that yeah, go on labyrinths weird of labyrinths, steam rooms yeah. yeah people floating in water forever with like no breathing apparatuses at all that we can see it's like I think all of that stuff works real well. There's just like too much going on. It's a little too busy, but it's a great looking movie. The cinematography is gorgeous. There's one shot uh, or very, very early in the movie of the, like, the train that Dane DeHaan is on going to this retreat. That's like, it's like indescribable. It, it's like 
it's of the train as it's turning, so you see the reflections of where it's headed. It's like one of the coolest shots I've seen in a while. Uh, I could have watched like a like a ninety minute movie, and, and the movie is so long. It might that shot might have gone on for ninety minutes. I'm not sure. So it is a movie that I think is you you don't expect a visionary masterpiece from the visionary director of the ring, but I think do expect something that's pretty scary and you will appreciate at the very least that it, it is a movie that is taking some chances, taking some swings. It is not just uh, you know, a formula uh, from the guy who did all these movies that a lot of them do have formulas. So it's maybe a movie that I appreciate more than I like, but I think it is worth watching a cure for wellness available now on VOD available on VOD on July 18th is Kong Skull Island, the recent reboot of King Kong as a Vietnam War-era Apocalypse Now-esque journey into the deepest, darkest recesses of the mysterious island that Kong calls home. Uh, I, I don't think the metaphors about war and Vietnam really held, held up in this movie at all, in any way. And there were some very kind of obnoxious plot holes in the film as well that, you know, they're trying to fit this thing in with the Godzilla movie they made and other movies that are coming up. And I think all of that stuff, it's just, you can just feel how uncomfortable and awkward that is. But I thought like as a, just a pure like B movie effects movie, there is some really good stuff here. The King Kong himself, like the, he's really awesome. Like the way he looks and moves and there's this big set piece where he smashes all their helicopters, which is like super fun and awesome. It's the highlight of the movie. Definitely the highlight of the movie. And it comes like fairly early on in the movie. Yeah, it's sort of, the movie never, never tops it, but it is a really great sequence. And John C. Riley is really good too, as this guy who gets stranded on this island for decades and he kind of comes out the other side when he's found by everyone else's like, he's, crazy john c Riley type it's it's very fun so that's kong skull island that is available on vod on july 18th and finally available on july 28th a movie i am greatly looking forward to i would like to read you some quotes from one film critic i respect and admire allison wilmore never heard of her yeah she's pretty good you should check her out here is one of those descriptions of this film let's see if she knows it from the description of her own work let's see a transcendently bad movie about aid workers and African suffering. But to its credit, the romance is actually worse. The Last Face. That's right. It is The Last Face, directed by Sean Penn. Uh-huh. This was a w- one of the most notorious uh, films at the Cannes Film Festival of the last 10, 20 ever years. <laughs> Possibly. It had a, it had a, uh, it didn't do well at Cannes. That's putting it mildly. No. I, you know, movies get booed at Cannes sometimes that don't deserve it. Sometimes right. getting booed at Cannes is just a sign that your movie is interesting. Right. That is correct. And 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 daring and ambitious. That is not the case with this movie. This okay. movie deserved to be booed. It was, so, resound- and, and was, was it? Yes. Resoundingly booed. Yes. You I also mean, called it a hate watch for the ages. It definitely is. <laughs> I, just, I love like, that expression. Just, <laughs> even from... I, I went and posted the opening title cards on oh, my Twitter account, right. which you can find if yes. you search for them. And I've never heard a theater full of people shift uncomfortably and snicker at that opening turn cards. on a movie that fast yes. because that's, it's literally the opening cards. Yes. Well, it has Charlize Theron and Javier Bardem. Oh, I, I can't imagine a more talented leading pair. Yeah. And, um, you are- and I think that, 
I don't know if they, I guess Charlize was still with Sean Penn at the time in a oh, relationship no. which had ended by the time they did their very uncomfortable press conference. Oh, no. So I don't, there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on well, in this terrible film. Yes, but all that said, you said it's a hate watch for the ages, which means attention must be paid. Yeah, it, it does a lot of things grandly, poorly. <laughs> I can't wait. All right, well, I'm looking forward to seeing it finally. The Last Face. It is available on July 28th. So as may I speak candidly? Please. My survey work was long ago. To be quite honest, I was rather hoping for a position where I might see a fair bit of action. Major, this is far more than just survey work. This is exploration in the jungle. The environment's brutally difficult. Terrible disease, murderous savages. The journey may well mean your life. At the very least, you will be gone for several years. But were you to succeed, such an undertaking could earn you soldierly decoration and even reclaim your family name. On every episode of Filmspotting SVU, you tell us what you'd like us to review by voting on one of three options for our main review. July being a quieter month for streaming services, unexpectedly. It's so hot, you think that they would, you know, be giving you stuff to do to spend indoors in AC. Uh, so we turn to some rentals. James Gray's The Lost City of Z and Lona Scherfig's Their Finest, a World War II movie about Dunkirk that is not Dunkirk. Along with Asghar Farhadi's Oscar-winning The Salesman, which is streaming on Amazon Prime. And while The Salesman kept pace for quite a while, The Lost City of Z held on for the win. The Lost City of Z is the sixth film from writer-director James Gray and his first to not be set in some era in New York City. Hmm. It instead straddles early 20th century Europe and the South American Amazon. Uh, Europe, specifically England, uh, is where Percy Fawcett, the officer-turned-explorer played by Charlie Hunnam, is born, lives, marries, and starts a family with his wife Nina, played by Sienna Miller. The Amazon is where he's sent to first map the border between Bolivia and Brazil in the company of Corporal Henry Costin, played by Robert Pattinson. And the Amazon becomes the object of his obsession, a place to which he returns more than once at great cost, not just in terms of uh, having to find funding, but in terms of the time uh, and in terms of the cost to his body. Uh, but he is bent on searching for evidence of advanced civilizations in the jungle in an era in which the indigenous people there were treated as primitive in a way that was used to justify their enslavement. Percy Fawcett was a real person, and The Lost City of Z is based on a 2009 book about him by David Gron. But in Gray's hands, this isn't so much a standard biopic as it is a story about obsession, or maybe it's more appropriate to say a calling. The jungle consumes Fawcett. Uh, it becomes a part of him that is forever restless. So my question for you, Matt, is since this is a story about being away from home in addition to being one about exploring, what did you think of Sienna Miller as his wife, an actress who has had a long career of often thankless wife and spouse or, and girlfriend roles? Yes. As well as eventually Spider-Man himself, Tom Holland, mm. as their son. Did you feel that the film did more with them that is maybe usual with these characters in a movie like this, which tend to make them just narrative counterweight? Yeah, I, they probably could use more screen time. 
and Tom Holland in particular, like he's in less of this movie than you might expect when you go, oh, Spider-Man is in this? Like he is, but he's he's really only in the last, I don't know, 40 minutes or so. His character ages, and he's basically like the last guy to play that character, the son character. So, you know, he I think he could have probably used a bit more screen time. There's a lot of sort of emotional weight riding on the end of the film and what happens to him and and his father. And I, I suppose we'll, we won't spoil it for people who are unfamiliar with history, but <laughs> it doesn't go great for them. But, you know, like, I don't think I don't know that that part necessarily lands as strongly as it could. But in a way, that's you, you almost need that because of the interesting structure of this movie where it is so unlike the typical man goes into jungle and becomes obsessed and gets lost in it, you know, where that is like, you know, a, a doomed expedition is, is this typical thing and it happens over a course of weeks or days even. It's just like instantaneously. And in this movie, as you said, it's it's as much about time as it is anything else and how how much time especially i guess it, you know in the in the early part of the 20th century you could lose just doing something doing your calling as you put it like what a sacrifice a personal sacrifice you would have to make you know there's a line at one point in the movie where i think he says something like you know when they're first they're first in the amazon they're first going to go on the river he's like the river will be our home for the next 2 years and i'm thinking <laughs> what you are going to spend two years on, like, the rinky, dinkiest raft I've ever seen in the middle of the river. And you're thinking, that can't be how people did this. But, you know, it, it was. was. Well, just imagine how much time it took them to get to that just, river. Right. Right. Exactly. So, anyway, we could talk more about that. Uh, but in terms of Sienna Miller, I thought she was really good in this movie. And it is, it to some degree, it is still the thankless, you know, wife role. But she brings a lot to it. And it's funny because I liked her a lot in this movie. And I like Charlie Hunnam a lot in this movie, and I'm not huge fans of either of them. And I thought this was like the best thing either of them has ever done. Yeah, I I think that it is a, it's funny, there's almost like a meta quality to the fact that Sienna Miller has played so many of these roles where she is huh. the woman, I feel like, on the phone getting called or, you know, yes. like that, or the, the girlfriend who fades away for long portions of the movie. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the fact that she plays this character who the movie will never will not let you forget and will not let you just turn into someone who is an accessory to the main character's life. You know, I thought she is. It's one of the best roles I've seen her in for a long time. And I agree about Charlie Hunnam as well. These are two, uh, two performers who I think sometimes can kind of like fade into the formlessness. A bit. Like they're both they're like, bland. yeah, they're both like attractive blondish British people yes. who, uh, aren't always uh, coming across as like strong in terms of just being memorable, and I, I think she is in this, and I think that I I'm I've often been frustrated with the type of character that she plays because she almost has is being put in a position of working against the flow of the movie, mm-hmm. right? The like wife who begs her husband to stay at home. Like is literally trying to stop the movie from happening, True. right? In the like the structure she, and like it's a totally unfair place to put on someone with legitimate concerns, but that's right. what ends up happening. Right. You end up really frustrated with that character. And I think in this case, the ways in which the the movie puts you a bit on equal footing, she has very legitimate like she you like her, she's a person. Yes. And you understand why he doesn't just walk away so easily. In some ways he is uh uh Fawcett is always aware of losing time in either direction Mm. when he is in the jungle he is aware of how much time he is spending away from his family and he gets flashes of his family and yet when he's back home 
He wants to go back to the jungle. Yeah. In a weird way, it is one of the most relatable movies about these things that I I could not relate to at all in terms of exploring and going to the jungle and, you know, encountering these people. And I like, I have no interest in doing any of that. And yet the idea that it, this movie is about is, is really about what price are you willing to pay in your personal life to, you know, achieve professional success. And that's something I think everyone can relate to and i know you know having a a small kid at home who's occasionally crying in the background you might hear while we're recording this like i can absolutely relate to it's like every time i go to a screening i think oh i'm missing bedtime you know every time i'm here i'm going oh i can't go see lost city of z because i'm want to you know it's like that is it's like the, the there's time is so finite in everyone's life and so every decision has a reaction and i think that this movie uses this like incredible story to tell you this to 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 talk about something that is in a way almost mundane which i found totally fascinating in terms of those two lead actors the one other thing i wanted to say in terms of liking them so much and disliking them a lot of the time they're allowed to use i don't know if it's their actual accents but they're allowed to be british and so often neither of them has good american accents and when when we talk about how they seem to like flatten or disappear it just seems like when they're made to talk with a generic American accent. It's like, like a regionless American accent. Yeah, it just, yeah. just, it like, I don't know if it's because they're so focused on it or whatever, but it like, it makes everything about them featureless and bland. I don't know what it is, but th- they should never do anything not in a British <laughs> accent. That's my message to them because well, when okay. they're allowed to do it just to, they just seem so much more comfortable and they seem to own these characters. And I think ex- what you said about Sienna Miller's character, Nina, is, is so true where that character is often even if she's not the villain of the movie the role that that character is cast in is the villain because you're right that she's like undermining the movie essentially but here you know she's not a scold necessarily she's not trying to stop him she's trying to you know like she just misses her husband and you and you completely you completely get it and i think it's even though it's a more interesting version of that character, it still could have gone badly. Yes, and I think that she really delivers in that role. Right, and she and it helps that they and I should say I, if it's not clear already, I like this movie a lot. Uh, it helps that they are both deliberately painted as a bit ahead of their time. You yes, know? like that she is. Someone who's like, I would wear trousers everywhere if I could. Yeah, and she's like I'm, a proto-feminist. Yeah, she's a proto-feminist. She's an independent woman, and she declares herself. Right. And he is someone who's very, like, who both is very frustrated with the kind of remaining class system that uh, is keeping him back professionally. Yes. And is also, in ways that I think work and don't work, is you might he's kind of woke, <laughs> right? He is. A little bit. He is, like, uh, has a very sudden kind of, like, enlightened viewpoint on uh the indigenous people that he meets that you never really understand how he makes that leap so quickly yes i think that is a fair criticism of the movie yeah but i i do think that that is almost it i I, it is downplayed in some ways because it is the least interesting part like I, i don't think that that gray has a ton of interest in this character, this man, as he may have actually been, right? right? He is a vehicle. He is for a vehicle for the stuff we've themes. been talking. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, so he, you know, when Fawcett 
is suddenly comes back and has this great scene where he like yells at the Royal Geographic oh, Society the and they scene. yell back at him. Yes. <laughs> and you make, they just rag on each other. Angry British people yelling at each other. Just it's tremendous. Jowly men with, uh, <laughs> it's exactly, <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, but you know, amazing. and he just like tells them how close minded they're being. It's, um, it's very satisfying, even if it seems a little, uh, a little out of left field. Yes. A little out of step with the moment. Yes. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's, it is telling that you, even though he is, he is very advanced in his thinking hmm. in ways that were unlike other other kind of British upper class uh, members of the upper class at the time. Still, not so much with the gender stuff, which right. is like really also a kind of sad and, and and kind of fascinating part when his wife says, "Maybe I'll go with you this time. Mm. I can go with you." He's like, "No, <laughs> you'll be I'm you'll not, hold me I'm back." I'm not that woke, right? He's like, "You'll hold me back." I'll just have to be taking care of you all the time. And then right. there's like an almost ironic cut to him escorting this guy through the jungle who is absolutely not prepared to uh, right. be an explorer. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that might be another way in which that uh, the movie is sort of co- totally about uh, modern times, even though it's all set in the past, is that idea that, oh, people they're, they're may- maybe have more progressive values, but there's still all of these intersectionality yeah you know like you never like if you announce a female doctor who like who knows what's gonna happen all hell might break loose um i have said before and i like re-watching this movie it it made me think of it again this movie does remind me of interstellar which is a movie about space exploration but it's also about same exact idea and i and i think that it is actually this movie is like so much better at dealing with that theme yes because it is so it understands that there is no answer Yes. It is torn. Yes. It is constantly torn. Yes. And there and there is actual kind of like pain to it that mm-hmm. you no matter what decision you make you have to sacrifice something. That's a very good observation and an interesting one because, you know, when Interstellar came out, one of the I was not a huge fan of that movie. Yeah, I am not a huge fan of that. And movie I remember you know, hearing from some people that well, you can't appreciate this movie unless you're a parent. You won't get it. And I wasn't a parent at the time. And now and I am a parent now. So I'd be interested to go back and revisit Interstellar and see does it affect me any differently. But having said that, you're right. Like the thing about Interstellar was that that whole sort of last act is like this weird, almost like wish fulfillment, uh, crazy science fiction thing that happens in a way to almost engineer a kind of happy ending. Whereas this movie is kind of ruthless in terms of, again, that central idea of time. You know, I mean... I suppose, in a way, Interstellar it wants you to believe that time is elastic or, you know, that there's a way to escape it. And perhaps someday people will find a way that there is. But in the here and now, it is not. And so when you're making a movie about personal sacrifice and time and the pull between the professional and the personal, there's kind of only one way it can really end if it's not going to end with, I quit traveling to the Amazon. Right. And I think that that's why... In, just on the basis of this particular theme, I, I also definitely prefer this movie. Yeah. I think also something that has always frustrated me about Interstellar is that I think that it can't help but be so lodged in the perspective only of the person who is trying to make this choice. Right. Like it is just it, it has actual difficulty having empathy for like his daughter. And I think that's why when the ending of Interstellar happens and there is the opportunity to spend some remaining time with your daughter 
And the, the spoiler alert. Yes, that is not necessarily the obvious choice that is taken um, in ways that like just like I think just have, like turned me on that movie forever. Right. Um, and I think that in this movie, you know, it's very much about you sense like you sense this kind of terrible march of time every time the like gap becomes he comes back and has a new son, you mm. know. And then he comes back and he has a daughter. And he comes back and he has a Tom Holland. Yes, exactly. Like his, um, and, and and then even then when he is back, when he, you know, the war has happened and he's at home, he, he's always aware on the other side of like, now the Americans are exploring. Now, right. like what all of this, uh, these discoveries are maybe being lost to me. And recasting the actors, you know, I make a joke about he comes home and there's Tom Holland. It's like sometimes in movies that can be a little weird because the main actors are not changing at all. And sudden, and the, the little kids, like every three years, they look totally different. But it works for this movie because it is like he comes home to a family he doesn't entirely recognize. Right. And so he doesn't it fits recognize per- him when they're like, are you, he's like, are you my father? Yeah, yeah. One of the most brutal lines you could ever imagine. And yeah, so it, I think that fits perfectly into the whole theme and the idea of the movie. As we're wrapping up here, the one thing I wanted to say was just, I, so I saw this movie originally in a theater and loved it. And looking at it again at home, I do think this is one of those movies that if I had the choice and if I was going to recommend to someone, it's too late to see it in a theater now, I suppose, and it's worth seeing at home anyway. But I think it was better in a theater then this is one of those movies that doesn't play as well at home just i mean first of all visually it looked stunning on the big screen you're losing a lot yeah. when you're watching it on a on a stream unless you've got a great television or projector and a great stream it's not going to be quite as beautiful and it is it's a it's a long movie it's not like the about it's not it's one of the like coolest movies about obsession and that sort of personal well it's like subdued and british right you know right. no one exactly. ever like, so it's a uh, long yeah. two and a half hour movie that you have to give yourself over to it's the kind of movie that doesn't play as well when you're sitting on your couch and glancing at your phone and playing you know two dots or whatever it is like it's definitely one that if you are going to watch at home i encourage you to do it when you can sit through the whole thing in one shot, when you can turn off the lights, when you can put down the phone, all that sort of stuff. I don't know if you felt that way, but I definitely felt like on second viewing at home, I was like, boy, I am glad I saw this in a theater. Yeah, I I also got to see it uh, in a theater first. And I don't, I yeah, I, I mean, you know, rewatching it on my laptop was certainly not ideal. It's not ideal. But, uh, and I think it its beauty is very subdued as well you know darius kanji right photographer it's not about cool shots no a lot and they shot in the amazon and uh it's funny uh james gray made some joke in an interview i was reading about how people are going to say it looks like it was shot in a back lot but there is a way in which it's shot where it doesn't there's no grandeur right to it you're ground level all the time so the amazon looks like it looks like to them which is just like a jungle thicket yeah it's just like green yeah and i think that and a lot of this movie's bits of like kind of magical, like the ways in which the jungle can intrude in life in England and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Like the ways in which those are done are very beautifully done, but they're also like very deliberately not flashy. Right. The final shot of this movie is one of those. And I think it's gorgeous, mm-hmm. but it's, it's also, it's deliberately done to not be flashy. There was a way flashier way to have staged that. And well, it's very tastefully done. Well, as you said, it's an underplayed, it's a very British 
kind of approach to that whole thing. The other thing we haven't really mentioned that I thought was is very, was very well done watching again. Well, I think you did mention it briefly. Was just the editing and the the like the flashes that sometimes happen, like the way that when he's in one place, there'll be a flash of the other place, or like he receives a letter from his wife, we see a shot of her, but he puts the you know the, he puts the, the thing in his in his pocket. He almost doesn't want to be taken there because he can't be there because he's going to be on the river for two years. That kind of thing. Um, all just very, again, J- that's James Gray. He's a very sort of precise filmmaker, not the flashiest filmmaker, but, you know, very thoughtful, very precise. And I appreciated all of that in this movie. Yeah, it's uh, it is a beautiful movie. I would definitely say if you can watch it in a the theater, it benefits from that because it is not a feverish movie about right. like, uh, it's not a Werner Herzog yeah, movie like at all. Like people tearing each other apart in the, in the jungle. It is, it is a different beast, but a very beautifully done one. That is The Lost City of Z, and it's available for rent. If we may find a hidden civilization where one was considered impossible to exist, we may well write a whole new chapter in history. I call it Zed. It is there, and we must find it. So in honor of uh, Percy Fawcett, we are talking movies about explorers here. And Matt, we ended up through no plan in particular, splitting on this on two different kinds of explorers. I ended up going for space exploration. Mm-hmm. And you ended up going for what? I don't know what you would call that. Jungle exploration. Jungle exploration. Yeah, I sort of Exploration, went... exploration. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I see this movie here where these guys are walking in the jungle. I'm just going to not be broad about this at all and just stick to the exact same thing fair enough very narrow-minded as i usually am there's one thing i would say about myself that would be it that would be it you're not someone who's gonna go traipsing off into the jungle i'm definitely not doing that that is maybe the second thing i would say about me yes all right well do you want to go first sure well my first pick i thought it might be fun again to go something to do a movie that's very similar in terms of milieu as the lost city of zed Zed, but in terms of style and tone, I don't know you if you could make a more humanly, like I don't think it's possible to make a a, a different movie from Lost City of Z than this. Uh, and I speak of the immortal 1997 film classic Anaconda, which is available <laughs> for rent, and it's also currently on Stars. If you have a Stars subscription. You can watch it right now on Stars. It's a creature feature set in the Amazon rainforest about a documentary film crew. They are on the hunt for a lost South American tribe. They might as well be looking for the lost city of Z, frankly, but they do not find it. Instead, they find a big-ass snake. And even more importantly, they find John Voight playing a Paraguayan snake hunter. Because when you think of the words Paraguayan snake hunter, the first actor you think of to play that part is John Voight. I mean, he's the first actor I think of for all parts, Correct. basically. Yes. Well, after you see this movie, that's certainly true. Because, and I don't want to oversell this, but John Voight's performance in Anaconda might be the greatest performance in the history of art. Wow. Bold. Have you ever, have you ever seen this movie? I have. He has a bizarre accent. It's very bizarre. He squints. A he, lot. He purses his lips. So he kind of looks like a snake. You don't think he looks like a snake? I, I think no, I could see it. I just, it's not try- the direction that I went in, I he guess. He definitely is trying to look like a snake. 
And to hunt the snake, Allison, you must become the snake. The plot, which I cannot believe I'm actually going to describe, is, again, about a documentary film crew with Eric Stoltz and Jennifer Lopez. What a combo. They uh, rescue John Voight's character in a storm, and then he sort of slowly sabotages the journey so that they can help him on his quest, which is to capture this mythic giant anaconda snake. And the effects of that snake are, to put it charitably, they are unconvincing. Let's put it this way. I believe John Voight is from Paraguay much more than I believe that there was an actual snake anywhere involved in this film. But, I mean, it really just fits with the B-movie vibe here. It is a grungy, low-rent monster movie, and everyone involved, including John Voight, absolutely gets it. This is one of those movies where no one had any aspersions. No one was like, I am going to win an Oscar for this movie, although maybe John Voight should have. Uh, It's just... It is. It knows exactly what it is, and it is a lot of fun. And, you know, I guess in some ways it does play into some of the, I don't know, the tropes or the fears of, like, explorer movies that other ones, better ones, serious ones might tap into, of going into these areas that have been untouched by human hands, not knowing what you will find, discovering that uh, perhaps humanity is not at the top of the food chain, something like that. But... Really, all I care about in this case is the John Voight performance. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If this movie came out today, John Voight's performance would be like the ultimate, the internet meme to end all internet memes. He would be everywhere. It would be uh, tremendous. But uh, if you haven't seen it, you know, I know there's a bunch of sequels. There's a crossover sequel with Anaconda versus Lake Placid. That seems weird to to call it versus Lake Placid. Right, that's a that's a lake. Yeah, I mean it's the the crocodile. It's or whatever a big it crocodile, is. right? It's, it's like giant. Not, yeah. yeah, I mean, snake versus is crocodile. It named Lake Placid. Is that the name of the crocodile now? Sadly, I am not versed is enough Placid in the, pl- the Lake Placid mythos. Last name is it, Mister Placid? Mister Lake Placid. <laughs> I really don't know. Maybe someone who's uh, you know a scholar on the Lake Placid it's mythology. Yeah, can yeah. explain it. Can write in and explain it to Please us. Please write in svu at filmspendingsvu.com. Yes, we would love to hear from you. But uh, I do strongly recommend the first film. It is a it is a hoot and a half. Anaconda. It is available for rent and on stars. Well, for my picks, uh, my first pick, I went with a movie that was about space exploration at its most boring and. Uh, I don't know, drudgery, I guess. It is Dark Star, mm. which is streaming on Fandor. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned it on this podcast before, but I couldn't even find the episode, so I feel fully good freed pick. up to talk about it again, if that's the case. This is the 1974 uh, science fiction comedy film, I guess you would call it. It's almost a satire, but not quite, because so many of the things it's making fun of aren't necessarily like hardened into um, in terms of like the genre tropes yet. Uh, directed by John Carpenter, co-written with uh, Dan O'Bannon, who also stars in the movie, and who would go on to write Alien, mm-hmm. which is in many ways a serious version of Dark Star, except yes. in this case, the alien is played for laughs by a beach ball beach with ball. claws. Yep. Yeah, like the whole, there's a whole scene involving a chase down the dark shafts into an elevator shaft that is like Alien, basically, mm. except in this case, it's with a beach ball. And it's funny. Terrifying. <laughs> space, no one can hear you play beach volleyball. Mm, yeah. Uh, Dark Star is space exploration as basically a grim workplace comedy. 
in which the ship in question has been traveling for 30 or 20 Earth years, but only like three years as experience on board, doing advance work for colonization efforts by blowing things up. Blowing unstable planets up, more precisely, though as the film goes on, it becomes clear that precision is not at all in the forefront of this effort. The ship is in constant need of repair. The crew are sleeping in the food storage room after their sleeping quarters were destroyed by an asteroid storm. There's a radiation leak that the government on Earth refuses to send supplies in to repair. And the entire supply of toilet paper was lost after a storage bay self-destructed. It is a hilariously grinding view of space exploration with a like the satirical it's like almost a despairing Dr. Strangelove streak to it, especially at the end, which is very Dr. Strangelove. Um, these characters are crammed into this little ship, destroying in the name of creation. And for the most part, getting really tired of one another. One character, Talby, spends most of his time in the observation dome. Another character, Pinback, tells an anecdote about how he's not actually pinned back at all. He was just a fuel specialist who was mistaken for him and sent on the mission after the real pinback committed suicide in front of him. And most tellingly, the reaction to this story by his coworkers is absolutely unimpressed. Uh, the other characters are mostly impatient because they've heard this story before. Um, I love this movie as deflating any and all grandeur <laughs> that might come with space exploration. Uh, you know, certainly it kind of, came in the wake of 2001 and I think was looked at as deflating that, Mm -hmm. but it is in some ways even more, uh, it feels even sharper now, uh, now that we've had many, many, many space movies. Uh, There's something about its kind of grubbiness and just like it's work, work workaday qualities. Uh, They are like space, space schlubs, basically, uh, trying to get by a good name for a movie uh, and basically being treated, treated as interchangeable. And there's something about that that is just great. Um, So that is Dark Star. I need to stream on Vandor. An excellent pick. My second pick is kind of it's a it's a bit of good timing uh, um, uh, for me. Last week was Harrison Ford's 75th birthday. And I was doing a radio show that was all about him. So I rewatched parts or all of a bunch of the Indiana Jones movies. So let's talk about them now. They're all, all four of them are available both on Hulu and on Amazon. Obviously, the first is still the best, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But there is stuff to admire about all the sequels, The Temple of Doom, The Last Crusade, and even Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And they are all about exploration in various ways. Granted, their uh, vision of exploration is a little different than the one in The Lost City of Zed. Uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas's movies are these rousing adventure stories based heavily on old movie serials with lots of action and excitement, as opposed to, you know, spending two years on a raft in the middle of the jungle. But even so, when you watch them through this prism, like when you watch them while you're thinking about Lost City of, of Zed, you see that there are some similarities. I think most... Importantly, Indiana Jones is always searching for these priceless artifacts of antiquity, but he's very rarely successful. Like, a lot of the Indiana Jones movies are about almost succeeding and going back. You know, like, there's the the third one. The beginning of the movie is this great, you know, cold open where he's, as a teenager, is chasing after this ancient cross. And then we snap cut to 20 years later or whatever it is, and he's still trying to find it. You know, in a way, it's it's a sort of a happy version of that same sort of obsessive uh, drive. And sometimes he, even when he succeeds, you know, 
the opening of Raiders, he immediately has what he's found stolen. Well, you know, he's also presumably parsing this out while on sabbatical or in semester break. Yes, I was going to talk about that as well. (laughs) Right. Or, you know, at the end of a movie, he might succeed, but his treasure gets locked away for eternity in a government warehouse. And so it's just as far away as it ever was. Um, Another thing that I was more aware of watching them this week and have become more aware of in recent years than I was when I was watching them as a kid and just saw them as fun is how much, particularly the sequels, are indebted to other movies and other genres, not just adventure serials. And each of the sequels has different influences. The Temple of Doom opens with this wonderful Hollywood musical. The Last Crusade, which we were just talking about, it starts in Indy's youth. And that one... It seems like it's kind of the, inspired by, I think, silent films, you know, silent comedy. There's a lot of that in that opening sequence on the train. And then you have Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is set during the 50s, which I think in some ways made it like an object of ridicule more because it had a lot of goofy sci-fi stuff. But that's what was going on at the time that that movie was taking place. And so you you are invited in a way to be a bit of an Indiana Jones yourself. If you're knowledgeable enough about movie history, you watch these movies and you can find all these buried references hidden in them if you're paying a, a attention, which is pretty cool. And then even with all of the, the action, the movies do have – again, there's a bit of bureaucracy and sacrifice that The Lost City of Z has in there. You know, we, we were just mentioning, you know uh, – you know, office hours he's missing all those office hours think about his his students his students are must be giving him if they have very that, poor yes, uh rate my ratings. professor yes know. yeah but i mean and, and think about his love life i mean again like it's not very happy you know he, you know that john williams music makes everything sound fun but i feel like there's the set don't you think someone has pitched this movie to, <laughs> to lucasfilm i want to make the gritty reboot of indiana jones this is not a happy film about a happy a, man a workaholic who's barely holding i already to work us. around the clock <laughs> to name a, a different indiana jones movie so you know it's hard out there for a, a rugged archaeologist um yeah i i I don't love Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but I'm I I can defend most of the first half. Let's put it that way. So yeah, uh, they're all wonderful. No, okay, they're not all wonderful. They all have wonderful parts. They're all good. Most of them are good. The Indiana Jones franchise, all four films, they are available now on both Hulu and Amazon Prime. All right. Well, for my second pick, I, I wanted to go with a film that. Uh, I feel like is given too hard a time for its final act, which frankly, I don't mind. Okay, Matt, I don't mind when Whoa. Sunshine turns into a space horror action film at the end. Okay. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, Danny Boyle's 2007 film is available for rent. It is uh, a space exor- exploration film uh, driven by desperation as opposed to necessarily curiosity or an attempt to uh, expand borders. It is, uh, and it, you know, it it made me think of Dark Star, not just because the character who enables the turn until into space horror action, played by Mark Strong, is named Pinbacker. It's inspired by Dan O'Bannon's Dark Star character, Pinback. Uh, it's also that if Dark Star is about exploration by way of boredom and incompetence and feeling insignificant, Sunshine is the opposite. Its characters are the best of the best. Their mission is of the utmost importance, uh, and they are going where no human has gone before in order not to enable colonization, but to enable the continuation of life on Earth by dropping a colossal nuclear bomb into the sun, as you do. 
and restarting it. Uh, I think that there is something about the tension that is everywhere in this movie that is really, I, I think, sets it apart. It's rare that you see a movie that is about both how long it takes to travel in space, but also how tense you feel the whole, like the whole time. In this case, the stakes are so high that even though these people have essentially lives of routine and boredom, have been living them for quite a while, like pent up together, mm. they also feel like the weight of their responsibility all of the time. Um, you know, uh, there are times when Sunshine has uh, is reminiscent of The Martian, which is my favorite of the more recent space exploration films. Sunshine is certainly more sensational, but it's also about the hard math of survival and sometimes messing up that math, which is what sets some of the story in motion here. Uh, you know, the math of how many plants you need to sustain your atmosphere, the math of how many degrees you need to adjust your uh, impossible sun shields in order to protect the ship. Um, its characters are like the ones in The Martian, all very competent, though they make mistakes. And when they fight, it is the kind of fighting people do when they're under huge pressure, the kind of fighting where they know they have to get past it eventually, but they can't even go that far to sulk when they're uh, in, this, in this spaceship that's relatively small. And I will say, the ca uh, you know, the film is 10 years old now, and the cast looks even more impressive from the vantage point of 2017. Killian Murphy in the lead role as the uh, uh, scientist Kappa. Chris Evans uh, playing a supporting character. And it's really funny to see, given that Chris Evans is like now one of the more famous Chris's of the world, uh, movies from this era in which he was playing sometimes the goofy comic Wacky relief. sidekicks. Yeah, yeah he played a lot sidekick. of wacky sidekicks. Um, just extremely handsome, but wacky sidekicks. Right. Yeah. Michelle Yeoh, Rose Byrne, Cliff Curtis, Hiroyuki Sonata. It's, uh, it is a great cast. And uh, it is a movie that presumes intelligence in its characters that I, I, in a way that I really appreciate. You know, I think that the difficulty always with movies about space exploration is making you feel how fragile people are, mm. how out of their element they are. Mm. And I think that this movie makes you aware of that all the time, even before it makes its leap into a like literal battle for the soul of humanity, that it is something it is, uh, it makes you aware of like these people, like basically in this tiny, uh, relatively tiny space, uh, spaceship strapped to a bomb behind a giant shield. It is like this, it seems like a jury rigged, uh, vehicle with which to attempt to save humanity. Um, so I like this movie a lot. I think it's underrated. Um, it's one of my favorite Boyle films. And I think that uh, sometimes it's given too hard a time for that last twist. So that is Sunshine and it is available for rent. All right. Let's talk about some new movies in theaters. Uh, we've got the big movie of the weekend as we are recording this, which we've both seen. We can talk about that. And then there's some upcoming movies. The big movie the week after this recording, we haven't seen yet. We're seeing it tomorrow. That's Dunkirk. So we can't tell you what we thought about Dunkirk, unfortunately. Um, but Allison has seen uh, a couple of the other bigger movies that are coming out next week, so she can tell us about those. But let's start with War for the Planet of the Apes. This is the third film in the uh, trilogy of rebooted Planet of the Apes movies with Andy Serkis playing Caesar, the leader of the apes. This is uh, this is supposedly the final one for now. I imagine if it's successful enough, they'll probably figure out a way to continue the franchise. Uh, 
did you have you exhausted your interest in the planet of the apes i think we've already had a mild twitter tiff about this i think it's fine i think that this movie is fine i think that uh andy circus's caesar continues to be a really impressive bit of uh motion capture technology wedded with human talents and i think that you know they've they've been really they it's it's impressive that they have made it to a point where you can have the apes be so thoroughly uh the focus of these movies right. and not have it look like a bunch of people in costume or like a, a bunch of not uh emotionally articulate enough computer generated things like they are they seem like full characters i just i uh, was not that engaged with this i thought it was fine you love this movie. You think well, it is fantastic. I, I think the first half of it is is fantastic. I think the first half is is perfect. Basically, I I it did lose me a little bit when there's a the, the second half of the movie sort of winds up almost becoming like a prison movie. Yeah, and that's p- almost like uh, Ten Commandments a bit. There's like a mm. bit of the. Uh, in terms of yeah, they become like the enslavements. enslavements and building a wall and Woody Harrelson, who I think is pretty good in the movie. He's you know he's kind of like this Colonel Kurtz figure. It's another every movie this year about apes has to have Apocalypse Now imagery. Apparently. I don't I don't know why, but that's the rule. And yeah, he's like the commander of this military outpost. And there's a once it gets there, it kind of lost me. The movie shifts a few times. It starts off as one thing, and then it becomes almost like a western, like a Magnificent Seven kind of thing, where it's like a or a revenge western, where they're the Caesar and a couple of his ape buddies are traveling across the landscape to try to find Woody Harrelson's character and extract this revenge that they that he wants. And that part of the movie I thought was amazing. Like when you're traveling with these apes and only one of them can speak, but they you know they communicate through sign language and there's like almost no humans in it at all. I thought was amazing. And then the stuff at the at the prison, there's still a lot of stuff in there that I liked, but I just it did it didn't seem quite as magnificent to me it did seem a step down and and some of the ending in particular i thought was was kind of bad i will concede that and, and i don't really remember how it ends to be well there oh, is, wait no i do there's a, well, yeah, yeah there's for a movie that i agree has incredible special effects and i do think this movie should win an oscar like i very rarely care about oscars for visual effects but the fact that this series hasn't won one for these incredible apes i think is really unjust and uh, I would hope that this year the people would vote for this movie because it really should be recognized how incredible these apes are. Uh, there, There is an ending that involves a, a – I don't want to describe what happens because I don't want to spoil it. But a, a natural disaster, let's say, that looked incredibly bad. Like it was made like on a on your computer here in an hour and it was just compared to the incredible detail work that's in the apes it was just like did they decide to change this i really wonder if they decided to change the ending at the last minute um from like one ending to another that maybe had a different emotional impact perhaps i don't know but that was how i was feeling and if they didn't mean to do it i want to know why that scene looked so much worse than everything else which looks so great but uh, other than that i think it is a it's a it's a good movie and i appreciate that you know these movies are trying they are trying to address ideas and issues and it's not just about the cool special effects in a way the special effects are so cool you stop thinking about them and you are allowed to think about the characters and the ideas that are going on and i appreciate that in a big giant summer blockbuster so yeah i i i definitely like the movie a lot it's fine. It does get very biblical uh, in ways. It's that a I little too biblical funny. at the end. Yes. It's it's like, can he be Jesus and Moses he's all Jesus, at the he's same? He's Jesus and Moses. He's Jesus yes. Moses. 
Yeah, it's right. a lot. It is a lot. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not crazy about the ending. I don't think they nailed the ending. They didn't stick the landing. But I'm like I said, the first half of this movie I thought was like perfect. I was um, halfway through this movie. The, the uh, there's a scene where they're like they're on horseback on the along the beach, and it's clearly you know they're evoking the original Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. but not too much. Uh-huh. And Michael Giacchino's score is like pounding. It has this great like weird tribally kind of score that I loved. And I was like, this is great. And yeah. it did, it did my enthusiasm waned as it went along a little bit, but still good. Yeah. I did like uh, Steve Zahn's bad ape. Steve Zahn is bad ape is great. Is and I don't know the actor. It's not a famous actor who plays Maurice. Who's like, <laughs> Caesar's conciliary. Yeah. That ape, it's like hard for me to believe that that ape is not a real ape yeah. in the world. It's so believable and so lifelike. It's in- incredible. I will say, I, I did leave the film thinking, like, uh, I'm really interested to see what kind of essentially post-human movies we have coming up because yeah. uh, the technology is there. Right. Like, Boo, humanity. We're boring. We've seen it all. Yeah. But that being said, let's move on to some movies about humans and some movies about humans and aliens. Yes. Quickly, I wanted to talk about um, Girls Trip. Yes. Tell us about Girls Trip. Uh, Girls Trip is a, it's just a really fun, you know, like I, I am really curious to see where this goes because it's uh, an R-rated comedy at a moment when R-rated comedies have not been doing very well. Right. Um, but it is also, uh, you know, it, it isn't it doesn't fall into the usual niche of like, say something like rough night, which has a very similar kind of basic setup. This has a, it's got an all black cast, including Queen Latifah, including Jada Pinkett Smith, including Regina Hall and Tiffany Haddish, who is really, really funny. She was in Keanu and she really steals this movie, you know, for a movie that is like, suppose it is like equal parts, like a raucous, a uh, female-driven comedy and a like affirmation of friendship movie. I she like definitely manages to be the breakout star. I I don't think that this necessarily uh, breaks new ground in terms of movies, but I do think it is sweet and funny. And at a time in which comedy seems to be kind of floundering at the box office a bit, I yeah. am wondering if this will manage to break out. Just I I mean by like by being about something other than. Uh, it's not a lot of competition for comedies right. either. Well, right. Well, being, being, being about something other than saying like a remake remake of Baywatch, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so we'll see. I think it's it's a nice movie. Is it really 122 minutes? Yeah, it's a, it's got a lot of like uh, jokes about peeing on people, jokes about having sex with a college boy. All right, uh, I'll going allow to see it. concerts. All right, I'll yeah, allow it. Yeah. All right, tell um, us about Valerian, Valerian and, and the, the city, city of a Thousand, thousand planets. planets. Did you count them all? Are there a thousand of them? Well, you get a sense of how many you okay. kind of on. It's more like a, it's sort of a, it's a space station that becomes a giant city, which all of these different, first like different human space, like uh, space forces join it and then alien ones join it. Right. And then it becomes this like built. I'm already whatever. confused. Um, it doesn't matter. What like what do you need to know? It's Lupus on. He somehow got people to pay like give him like a hundred and eighty million, million dollars. Like, outrageous amount of money to make this movie. And he's basically made uh a less good but possibly and certainly better looking version of the the fifth element. That's okay. what this is. Okay. All right. Like I, the world building is like gorgeous and insane in a Luc Besson style, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it's got like it starts off with this whole sequence involving these like lanky blue skin sparkly aliens living on a like white sand beach washing their face in pearls which they feed to this adorable animal who then replicates them and uh gives new life to the planet <laughs> and they live in shells all right and it just gets on it goes on from there into weirder things 
Um, the weak spot, certainly, I would say, the two main characters. Uh, this is based on a French science fiction, science fiction comic series. Uh, these characters feel... It reminded me, actually, this is very specific and no one will ever care. When they made The Avengers, that movie, The Avengers. The Sean Connery Avengers. The well, one. Yes, I, calling it the Sean Connery Avengers is fascinating. Yes, the Rafe Finds and Uma the Thurman Rafe Thurman Finds Avengers. and Uma Thurman one. Yes, where you're like, oh, you've taken what feels like uh, this long, like, uh, like will they or won't they relationship between these main characters and like compressed it into a movie in which sure. they make out really quickly. Yes. And this movie feels a bit like whatever the relationship between these characters was in the comics. Uh-huh. It does feel like it compresses this right directly into the end of a will they or won't they relationship. Um, and also, I don't know, Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne are maybe not, they're not what I would say were my first choices for these roles. They seem very mini for these, for the way these characters are supposed to be. Cara Delevingne is uh, certainly more comfortable on screen than she was in Suicide Squad, which I thought was an act Ugh. of cruelty towards her, yeah. I thought. But it's still not someone who I think is, is ready to carry a movie like this. And Dane DeHaan, I like him as an actor. We talked about uh, Cure for, for Wellness, wellness earlier. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's very weird to see him in like a swaggering bad boy of space role. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of him in that role either. Yeah, it's an odd fit. Um, Clive Owen is in this movie as this kind of uh, obviously sinister uh, head of, um, I don't even know what space military thing they're doing. But what you really want to hear about is Rihanna. And here's what you need to know. Rihanna is in the movie for maybe 10 minutes maximum. She gets one great like dance number. And sure. that's about it. Sure. That's about it. Um, not get like a ton of screen time beyond that. Is still not also someone where I'm like, you're entirely ready to do acting uh, when it comes to line delivery. But looks amazing. Like her dance number is fantastic. All right. So that so, is certainly worth it. I, you know, it's a movie that where you're like the giant adventure plot in the middle is the least interesting part of the movie. All of the surrounding right. stuff, the world building, the visuals, that is all something I enjoyed a lot. All right. Here's a question. If, if someone was only going to see one war for the planet of the apes or Valerian, which of those two? Oh, Valerian. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. All right. I'd rather see like wildly uneven, but fascinating than like, like good enough. Uh huh. I can't really respond because I haven't seen Valerian. But I know. I'm, I'm so, so upset. I'm just right going to take the win. Is, I'm is so upset. Going. It's more of a forfeit than a win, but fine. All right, let's let's get to behind the eight ball before I get enraged here. Uh, this is the part of the show, of course, where we give you some new recommendations that are on streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, you want me to go first? You were just yeah, talking. Yeah, I was just talking. Presumably uh, incorrectly about Valerian. No, I was, after having spilled all this knowledge, I'll take a break. You can go first. All right. Well, give me three new releases. All right. First up, I have a double feature of recent movies by David Gordon Green, Prince Avalanche, a lovely low-key character study and comedy starring Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch, which is available on Hulu, and Joe starring Nicolas Cage and Ty Sheridan, which is available on Tubi TV. Uh, David Gordon Green, of course, got his start in acclaimed indies, suddenly found mainstream success with Pineapple Express, and then almost as suddenly found himself sort of 
back on the outs in Hollywood after he had back-to-back flops with Your Highness and The Sitter. Since then, he's done some interesting stuff, though, kind of quietly. I liked both Prince Avalanche and Joe. I missed Manglehorn. That was also in there somewhere. Yeah, it was not my favorite. Okay. I even liked Our Brand is Crisis. Did you see that one? I did. I actually did like that. Yeah, it wasn't well, bad. Not a lot of people did. Not it a lot of people very did. badly. Yes. The ending is by far the weakest part. But yes. a lot of it is really A lot of good. good stuff in it with Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton. That's a movie that's worth, you know, it's worth seeing. It's worth a rental, I think. Yeah, it, it was one of those things where the character was first written as male and then they cast Sandra Bullock. And I think that it makes for so many interesting rhythms yes. in how that character is treated that I loved. Yeah, it was it was a nice little movie. And next he's got, he's he directed Stronger, which is the Jake Gyllenhaal survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing movie that's coming out later this fall. Allison's looking like this is the first she's heard about this well, one. I, I didn't know that he had directed that. He did. I didn't know it either. Unexpected. But now, yes, it is. Well, he's making some unexpected choices. He's always made unexpected choices. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of David Gordon Green's MO. So that's Prince Avalanche on Hulu and Joe on Tubi TV. Over on Crackle, there's Adaptation. Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones, one of a kind adaptation of Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief, which is as much about... Charlie Kaufman writing and struggling to write that script as it is about the book and the story of the book itself. He is played in the movie by Nicolas Cage, and it's easily one of the only or few best movies about writing and writer's block, which is generally a very uncinematic subject. Uh, Nicolas Cage is wonderful as Charlie Kaufman and his twin brother, Donald, who, I gotta be honest, I think Donald is the more talented brother. I think in terms of writing, the three is just, I think, is a masterful <laughs> piece of tension well, and structure. I know how much you like the movie Identity, so. I, yes, I, I think that movie could have been even better if Donald had done the rewrite that I heard he was working on. It's just too bad. Anyway, that is Adaptation, available on Crackle. All right. Give me two listener recommendations. First up, here's one from Stuart in Iowa. Stuart writes, I'm a faithful listener, and after listening to your last two shows where you discussed Ken Russell's The Devils and then The Love Witch and Technicolor movies, I got to thinking that if The Devils and The Love Witch got together and had a love child, it might be Black Narcissus, which is streaming on Filmstruck. Like The Thief of Baghdad, Black Narcissus is helmed by Michael Powell in the Powell-Pressburger era, and also features Sabu in a supporting role, but the highlights are the gorgeous Technicolor cinematography and the sexual hysteria engendered among the nuns of a remote Himalayan convent where the local British agent just won't stop coming around in his lederhosen. I'm starting to sweat just reading this out loud. There are also some interesting special features on Filmstruck, including a 30-minute documentary on the cinematographer Jack Cardiff. Black Narcissus is one of the greats, so if film spotting listeners haven't seen it, they should check it out. So that's Black Narcissus on Filmstruck. Thank you, Stuart in Iowa. Next up, we have a uh, email from Patrick. Patrick writes, I just want to point out that Documentary Now Season 2 is now on Netflix. If you like film spotting SVU, chances are you already know about this show. But if not, I want to point out the fact that there is a Jiro Dreams of Sushi parody called Juan Likes Chicken and Rice. And that... And that in the Kid Stays in the Picture parody, the Robert Evans proxy directs a gritty sex romp called, I don't know if I can say this on the podcast. You can say it. It's called Fisting, which is easily my favorite joke of the 2016 television season. Uh, that's from Patrick. I, I still haven't seen all the documentary now. I th- did we talk about 
of Juan Likes Chicken and Rice? I think we did recently, I, right? I, I talked about you it. You talked it about it. Like, I know it's your it's, favorite thing I, it ever. It was my favorite, yeah. I have, watch watched, I have watched that. Yeah. It is magnificent. It's yes. so good. Um, I haven't watched these other ones. I guess I have to watch the Kids Stays in the Picture one. That sounds pretty funny, it too. It is good. And it's also a good critique of these type of movies where um, – they leave giant chunks of someone's life out and then people are left being like, wait, he never mentioned that he married me. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you, Patrick, for that recommendation. I'm entering now season two on Netflix. Okay. Give me one from your Netflix, my list. You gave me number one and number one on my, my list. The last thing I added to my, 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 my list on Netflix is Orange is the New Black, the new season, season five. My wife and I have watched the season, all the seasons to date, but not this one. I just added that on there. Of course, this is the uh, Netflix original series about the prison, the women's prison. This season, there's a, uh, a standoff that spirals into a full-blown riot. Uh, I have to say, though, I've heard that this season is not so great. Yeah, I have not gotten around to it yet. Yes, either. I've been uh, slow. I, you know, like the, all the previous seasons, I, I kind of tore through. Uh, my wife and I really enjoyed the last season. was okay; it wasn't as good. But I've heard from coworkers actually that are also big fans. Like eh, it's not it's not so good. So actually, last night we started Glow instead. We started the first episode I, of Glow. I enjoyed Glow a lot. We liked it too. We're gonna we're gonna keep watching it. It's nice. Also, that's a thirty minute show. Yep, you can. I you want can get more thirty. That. Yeah, I want more thirty minute shows in my life. The 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 sixty minute shows where there's no commercials, so it's actually sixty minutes. That's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a. Uh, it's a lot. It's only twenty minutes shy of a movie. Right. Exactly. So I like the fact that Glow is only the thirty minutes. I thumbs up to that uh, alone. That's a. That's a big plus for me. Allison, are you ready to go with your list? I'm ready. All right. Let's start with three new releases. All right. First up, new to Netflix is my Scientology movie. Not to be uh, confused with Alex Gibney's movie, which is a kind of more traditionally journalistic one. My Scientology movie finds uh, Louis Theroux, who is a British documentarian and kind of television host, deciding to make a movie about Scientology um, by teaming up with Mark Rathbun, Rathbun, who is like a former, one of the most high-level defectors from the church. And then when he realizes he can't get access to anyone in the church, uh, Thoreau decides to hire actors to restage some of their primal scenes. And so goes about casting a David Miscavige and a Tom Cruise uh, and then having them reenact things according to uh, accounts from within mm-hmm. the church, which is uh, an unusual and sometimes very funny approach. So that is on Netflix. On Sundance now is Los Sures, uh, which is Diego Echeverria's 1984 documentary about South Williamsburg. If you know South Williamsburg now, it is extremely prime <laughs> real estate and has changed a lot and is has gone from being maybe... Uh, from being at this point a, a mostly Latino neighborhood and a, a fairly crime-ridden but like also very like vibrant community um, it, at the time this doc was filmed to being a hipster neighborhood to being at this point just like a very expensive neighborhood. And so it is a fascinating time capsule of Brooklyn in the 80s and of New York in the 80s and it was a very different city. Um, so that is on Sundance now, Los Sures. And finally, new to Amazon is a movie that is listed on Amazon as The Black Box, though when I saw it and it was released as 
69. This is the 1999 film from Thai director Pen Ek Ratanarurang, um, who's best known for the terrific Last Life in the Universe. This was an earlier film uh, from him, a thriller about a woman who gets fired from her job, her office job, after the 1997 financial crisis in Asia. She discovers, uh, when she's home, an instant noodle box full of cash has been left outside her door accidentally because she lives in apartment six but the nail is missing from the number so it flips down and looks like a nine and it turns out the money was not meant for her and leads her down a path of some really dark things um so that is the black box i guess it's being called it is streaming on amazon all right how about two listener recommendations well first up we have a listener recommendation from mike who writes uh, my streaming suggestion can be found on Netflix and it's a British import and original called Marcella. I'm a sucker for dense and miserable British mysteries. You and me both, Mike. And this is no exception. We follow an ex-homicide detective back on a case to solve a murder that she may or may not have committed herself during a drunken blackout. As ridiculous as it sounds, it's presented with such serious precision that you just go along for the ride. Thank you for that, Mike. And we have a recommendation from Eric from Brooklyn, who writes, Peter and the Farm is now streaming on Netflix. I had heard good things, 100% on Rotten Tomato and all, but had sort of forgotten about it until I discovered it when looking for a venue for my wedding. The director, Tony Stone, owns Basilica Hudson, a gorgeous event space in the Hudson Valley. The movie is a hyper-intimate portrait of Peter Dunning and his farm in rural Vermont that's cost him multiple marriages, any relationship with his kids, and a fortune of money. Dunning is an intensely compelling figure who is half frightening madman from a 19th century novel and half the dude, but 100% self-destructive alcoholic. The movie itself is not eventful per se, but more of a journey through the farm and what it means to Peter as he fights his own personal demons. Scenes of him chasing sheep or ruminating on life while surveying a broken down barn on his property that is almost too on the nose a metaphor take on an even higher meaning through the beautiful cinematography. It's an incredibly sad movie. Peter discusses his desire to commit suicide multiple times, but ultimately a very grounded and real portrait of one man's attempt to create a life. Thank you, Eric. And one film chosen by... You gave me number seven, and that is Delicatessen. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the 1991 post-apocalyptic dark comedy directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunet and Marc Caro. I saw it a long time ago, and I barely remember it, other than I know there's cannibalism and French humor. Uh, and so I saw, <laughs> In that order. I saw it pop up on uh, Netflix again, and so I added it to my My List. There you go. All right. We've got some, I think, some very intriguing options for our next episode. Three relatively recent movies. Uh, I have the first one here. It is Miss Sloan, which is currently available for rent, and it should be available on Amazon Prime on July 28th. Sometimes Amazon's information on like release dates, it's not always 100% accurate. The dates sometimes are off. So we think it will be available for Amazon Prime users by the time we do our next podcast. But if not, it is available for rent, so you can rent it anyway. Here's the plot description. In the high-stakes world of political power brokers, Elizabeth Sloan is the most sought-after and formidable lobbyist in D.C., but when taking on the most powerful opponent of her career, she finds winning may come at too high a price. Winning may come at too high a price. Do they, does, the, do they, does anyone talk like that in the movie? Uh, I'm sure you can if this wins. All right. 
Uh, what else do we need? To, did you see? Have you seen Miss Sloan? I have seen Miss Sloan. What could we talk about if we if we well, review I mean, we could talk Miss about Sloan? Jessica Chastain. Mm-hmm. She's certainly the star. She is yes. Miss Sloan. I should have she, mentioned that. Uh, maybe we could talk about like movies about DC. Movies uh, about DC. Or, that would be interesting. You know, I, I I think that uh, there's a lot there. It's a movie that really wants to like chomp on some big themes. Okay. So. Also has Michael Stuhlbar, Gugum Batha Raw, Mark Strong. Good cast. Yeah. I don't know if there are enough movies about lobbyists, but this is yes, very this is a lobbyist about movie. lobbyists. And, uh, movies about Washington, D.C. could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea. That's a good idea. There's Okay, so there's a few options there. That's Miss Sloan. It's available for rent now, and we believe will be available on Amazon Prime on July 28th. That, at least, is what they've announced. So yes. hopefully it will. Um, just wanted to throw out the caveat that maybe it won't. Uh, so our second option is available now on Netflix. It is To the Bone, the directorial debut of Marty Noxon, who is a longtime TV writer and producer. She was uh, she took over Buffy the Vampire Slayer as showrunner after Joss Whedon left. She co-created Unreal and then left after the first season, and the second season of Unreal was not nearly as good. Um, she created Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. She's uh, like been a long time major kind of TV figure. And this is her directorial debut, uh, inspired by her own experiences with an eating disorder when she was younger. Uh, it is about a girl played by Lily Collins, who is 20 and is basically her whole life has been and has like uh, revolved around her anorexia. And it's about how she enters a in-treatment program run by a doctor played by Keanu Reeves and, uh, you know, tries to manage uh, uh, this thing that has basically become the center of her life. So it was at Net- it was at Sundance. It was bought for $9 million by Netflix, which was like... Uh, That's a lot. It was a lot and would be like a record amount maybe a few years ago. But these days with streaming companies at Sundance, they throw around a lot of money, so... It's not even that big a deal. But I think, uh, I don't know, there's a lot to talk about there. Certainly, um, I would be interested in maybe even talking about TV creators making movies. Mm. Because uh, I, I think Has that it it's not so well always, yeah, it's not always gone so well. No. Uh, and I think uh, this movie also we can talk about maybe portraying things uh difficult difficult subjects like eating disorders where there was a lot of debate about this movie uh even before it came out based on the trailer where some people think that it is irresponsible to make movies about eating disorders in general that Hmm. they are inherently glamorizing Hmm. so there's a lot there as well but that is your second option to the bone it is now streaming on netflix all right and option number three is uh is the is it the most recent? I don't. It's hard to keep track with him. It is one of it's, two volcano movies from the sure. director last year. Well, one was a documentary. I bet even if you don't know who it is, you can guess. If it's a documentary, it's a filmmaker making a lot of movies about volcanoes. It's got to be Werner Herzog, and it is. It's the new fiction film from Werner Herzog, Salt and Fire. And I'll read the plot description here. A scientist blames the head of a large company for an ecological disaster in South America. But when a volcano begins to show signs of erupting, they must unite to avoid a disaster. I'm just going to read all the plot descriptions that way from now on. Uh, Michael Shannon and Gael Garcia Bernal are in this, along with an actress I'm not familiar with, Veronica Ferris. Not sure who that is, but uh, we could potentially learn. If you choose this movie, uh, Werner Herzog in the last couple of years 
it seems like his documentary work has kind of outpaced his fiction work in terms of the attention and acclaim it's been getting. And he I used think... to be much more a fiction first director. Was he? Sure, yeah. Aguirre and I, I had always Fitzcarraldo. felt like he used to be like uh, he used to kind of be keep them keep them a pace. Like they I, and now I feel like at best at best though for the documentary side it was a pace. Now clearly he's that, he's yes. think, thought of much more as a as a icon and documentary filmmaker. So I yeah. think it would be interesting to like look at how his what his fit fiction filmmaking is up to these days um i should note that the volcano documentary he made last year into the inferno is streaming on netflix as well oh so we could talk about that too there could be all kinds of Werner herzog volcanoes going on herzog everywhere all right so that's option number three salt and fire available on netflix all right which of these movies should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video units you can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, July 24th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner uh, on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu, as well as on Facebook. Give us a like on Facebook, facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. And then you'll have all of that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be on Tuesday, August 1st. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And, of course, follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.